Welcome to another podcast episode of the Trek Online Bible School with Brad Hunt. I am here in my Minnesota office uh, getting ready to record chapter 9 of the book of Romans, a very powerful chapter and difficult for some people to accept. Uh, I find it to be Uh, tremendously uh, exciting to consider the truth, and it does require uh, humbling ourselves before God and uh, allowing Him to be God. So, let's start in uh, verse 1 of Romans chapter 9 after we pray. Father, we are here before your word asking you to teach us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, reveal to us what is said by the Apostle here, and may we learn the truths of the kingdom of God and be grateful that you have chosen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul finished chapter 8 by talking about Uh, the love of God that we cannot outrun, if you will. Nothing that we go through, nothing that we endure, nothing that we experience, nothing that we face will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, And the times that we are living in right now are very difficult Uh, just like the times that Paul and the apostles and the new Christians lived through, when many were being uh, persecuted, many killed. In fact, the Thessalonians uh, became worried that the day of the Lord had begun and that they had not been caught away uh, by the coming of Jesus for his bride, for the church. And... uh, I think we're living in similar uh, troubling times where people are wondering what is going on. And uh, we need to be patient. In fact, in Hebrews, I'm reminded of something that the author said to the Hebrew Christians who were enduring uh, great difficulty by their countrymen. And he said, you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you can receive uh, what he has promised. And we are waiting for the promise of God, which is the glorification of our bodies. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting to be caught up to meet him in the air. We're waiting to be changed, like Paul said to the Thessalonians, and we're going to be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, our bodies will be changed from mortal to immortal so that we can inherit eternal life and the kingdom, which is eternal. Uh, 
and we will forever be with the Lord. Now, in chapter 9, Paul is dealing with uh, Israel's present condition. Uh, We've learned through the first part of Romans up to this point, we've learned the grace of God. We've learned the righteousness of God that the Jews were chasing by trying to keep the law and achieve right standing by their own efforts and merits. And Paul had to teach them as well as the Gentile believers that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter whether we're circumcised or not. It doesn't matter what our upbringing was. We can't live perfect enough to earn God's declaration of righteous. None of us can. And so all of us are shut up under sin is the way the Bible puts it. We're all guilty. And we, we have no excuse. As, as much as we try, whatever our reasoning is, whatever we might have to say to God, remember that in the, in the Gospels, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we can be deceived if we think that our efforts to be good uh, ought to uh, cause God to show us a mercy. And that's simply not what the Bible teaches us. God does show mercy to whoever he chooses to show mercy, but it's not based on our behavior. It's based on our faith in him. Now, faith in him will cause us to live a certain way, but, you know, just like James said, faith without works is dead faith. So there are people who, apart from faith, uh, are trying to live good lives based on what religion teaches them, what their church teaches them, maybe even what a pastor or priest teaches them. And they think that by living that way, they will make it to heaven. And they don't understand that Jesus or that God said in the Old Testament, the just, those who are declared righteous before God, the just shall live by faith. So anyway, <clears throat> that is how we attain God's righteousness is by putting faith in him to save us just like he said he did. Now, he sent Jesus Christ to save us. He also sent Jesus Christ as the Messiah to Israel. We're coming up upon Easter where we're going to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. But before Easter, there was a triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Good Friday. Or forgive me. Uh, Good Friday is the is when the Lord is killed. But uh, I mean, we do Palm Sunday. Forgive me. Um, Palm Sunday is when we celebrate the Lord Jesus appearing before the leaders of Israel and presenting Himself as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
and uh, he presented himself as the Messiah. Everyone in that uh, procession coming into Jerusalem was declaring him as Messiah. Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. And they were shouting out, oh, save us, oh, save us, Hosanna. So they were acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. But when he came into Jerusalem, the leaders, sadly, who represented the nation, rejected him. And upon that rejection, Jesus' ministry then changed, and uh, the crowds, the Jewish crowds that were coming to him, uh, experienced a a blindness, a spiritual blindness. God uh, judged them with spiritual blindness. Paul talks about it in Romans, and we're going to deal with it in upcoming chapters, that Israel has experienced blindness in part until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So basically, (coughs) pardon me, God had promised to bring the Messiah to the Jews first, and he did. He sent Jesus into Jerusalem and declared him as uh, the Messiah, but the leaders rejected him, wouldn't take him as their Messiah, and uh, so they suffered blindness. In fact, Jesus wept over the city and said, if only you had known what would make for your peace, but now your house is left to you desolate. And so basically, uh, when Rome came in uh, AD 70, they destroyed the city and they destroyed the temple. And this was judgment from God because they had rejected the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. And so Paul begins to talk about that in chapter 9. And he explains some things that help us understand God's knowledge of his children. Because the Bible says in several places in the New Testament that God knew us before the foundation of the world. And if you take time to think about that, you realize that what he is saying is that before the earth was created and before he even created mankind, he knew those who were his children. And that may be difficult for you to understand, but given that God is not in the realm of time, he sees from the beginning to the end of creation all at once, And so even before we were made, he knew many of us. He knew that we would be his, but he also knew those who would not be his. And, uh, and so we were all created and, uh, well, I should say Adam was created and then, uh, the world was populated through the descendants of Adam and God knew in advance, uh, who each of us would be and what we would be, and how we would respond to him in faith. And some people, sadly, uh, don't belong to him. And uh, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but it doesn't change the fact that there are those who will perish because they will do just what the leaders of Israel did when Jesus came in on the 
full of a donkey, they will reject him as their savior. And they may try to, they may uh, establish their own uh, rationality as to how to deal with life after death. Some people may choose to suppress the truth and believe that after they die, that's all there is, they'll never exist again, uh, not knowing that we are eternal beings inside a, uh, a mortal body. And even though our body dies and uh, is buried in the grave and dissolves and goes back to the dust that it was made from, we are eternal and we will exist forever in one of two places. We will either exist with the Father in heaven or we will exist in eternal torment. And God has offered every person on earth, he has offered them the opportunity to be his. But not everyone takes that opportunity. And so Paul is dealing with his own people, the Jews, in chapter 9. And he starts off by saying, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. I'm, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Paul says, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. So he is saying, I couldn't be more truthful than I am right now. He said, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Israel. Paul is saying, I could almost say to God, would you just cut me off and send me to hell and save the rest of my people, Israel? You might say, how could anyone do that? Why would anyone do that? But I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in the New Testament. He talked about the rich man and Lazarus. And the way that this account is recorded, it seems pretty clear that Jesus is not speaking in a parable that Jesus is actually uh, revealing what happens after death. And he said this, this rich man lived, uh, you know, in all his comforts because of his wealth. And at his gate every day, Lazarus, a poor man, he might have even had a disability, sat at his gate every day, you know, begging for, you know, money so he could eat and things like this. And the rich man really didn't pay a lot of attention to Lazarus, but, um, you know, continued to enjoy his life based on his wealth. Well, Jesus said both of them died. <coughs> and the, the poor man, Lazarus, went to paradise and was being held in Abraham's bosom. In other words, it, 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 the picture is that Abraham is actually holding Lazarus who suffered his entire life, and now he was being comforted in paradise. But the rich man was in torment across a huge divide that Jesus talked about. And the rich man was in torment, and he saw Abraham holding uh, Lazarus and said, Oh, Father Abraham, would you please uh, have Lazarus dip 
the tip of his finger in water and and come to me and just touch my tongue with a drop of water so I can have a moment's peace in this dry, uh, hot, burning, tormenting place that I find myself. And of course, um, Abraham said, hey, in your life, you had your comforts and Lazarus suffered. Now he is comforted and you're going to suffer, and it's for all eternity. And the, the problem is, is that the rich man uh, brought it on himself because he would not do what was right before God. So anyway, uh, Jesus pointed out that uh, there is, uh, there is a, a heaven, there is a hell, and there is paradise, there is torment. Now, uh, another teaching for another time is about how Jesus, uh, when he died on the cross and, and went into the earth uh, after he was buried, uh, he actually brought out all the people that were in paradise and he uh, led them in a triumphal procession up into glory where the Father is. But uh, that's, that's for another teaching. Anyway, so people need to know that there is a hell. There is eternal torment. And Paul was actually willing to go to eternal torment if his own people could be spared from what he knew many of them were going to uh, face. And he knew that that was impossible because God just doesn't do that. It's, it's unrighteous to condemn uh, those that God has justified. So anyway, let's continue on here in uh, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. And this, these are the privileges that God gave the nation of Israel. To whom pertain the adoption. Israel was considered God's firstborn son. In the, in the scripture, when, when God says, out of Egypt I have called my son, the, the initial meaning of that was he was calling the nation of Israel out of, uh, out of slavery because he was considering Israel his firstborn son. So uh, Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption by God, to whom pertain the glory of God. God not only uh, demonstrated his glory to them, but he placed his glory upon the nation. God also made covenants with the nation of Israel. Covenants are a promise that God will not break. Now, the Israelites have broken his covenants, um, but he can't break his covenants because he is uh, truthful. God also gave Israel his law. No other nation in the world was given God's oracles or his laws. In fact, the law of God, the Ten Commandments and all, all those things that, that we have as a foundation for moral uh, understanding, living, and, and true righteousness came to us through Israel receiving the law from heaven. And then not only 
were they given the law, but God taught them how to worship him acceptably. And then God made many promises to them, and uh, of whom are the fathers, so the fathers of the faith, or the fathers of the faithful, uh, such as Abraham and, and uh, Isaac and Jacob and, and on down the line, they're Jews. And uh, from whom, according to the flesh, Paul says, Christ came. So in other words, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, came out of the nation of Israel. The Savior of the world is Jewish. The man who died on the cross for all of us and saved us, our Savior is Jewish. And these are all the privileges that God gave this nation, and yet they rejected Jesus. Then you go to verse 6, and you see that Paul is pointing out that God's word, having been given to the Jews, uh, should have brought about um, obedience and success and favor, but it didn't. And Paul said, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. In other words, it's not that God's word has failed. God's word did not fail. It was men who failed. And this is what he says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And this is something that that you may not understand and is not necessarily for the the novice believer who doesn't understand the scripture, but just because someone is born of Jewish parents, even if their parents uh, can prove their lineage back to some of the, the Jews that came out of Egypt, if they're as pure as pure blood you know, blooded um, Jewish as they could be, that does not guarantee that they are Abraham's offspring, according to God. See, because God does not consider those who are simply of the genetic descendancy of Abraham, he doesn't consider that in itself to be enough to be considered Israelite. Um, In verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. So genetics and, you know, proving that you're a pure-blooded Jew does not guarantee in God's sight that you are a true Israelite because God said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And here's what that means. Abraham and Sarah were promised a child. That was 25 years before that promise became a reality. It became a reality during impossible circumstances at an impossible time in their life where they could not physically produce a child. That's it. 
God's promise told them they would have a child, but it was impossible for them to have a child. So the only way they could have a child is if God intervened and did something supernatural. So in the meantime, Abraham and Sarah uh, chose to uh, do what was customary in their culture, and they, uh, they could raise up a family through another woman who was able to bear children, and she could become like a secondary wife to uh, the father of the home. And so Abraham and Sarah decided to do that. Sarah took her servant, Hagar, and gave her to Abraham as a secondary wife. And then Abraham went in unto Hagar, and they had sexual intercourse, and Hagar got pregnant. And according to culture, that child would then be considered Sarah's. Anyway, so this boy that was born was named Ishmael. And from Ishmael comes most of the Arab races. <coughs> Pardon me. But anyway, um, God said, and, and Abraham said, you know, Lord, uh, can my descendants be named through Ishmael? And, and God said, no, no, your descendants will not be named through someone born from another woman. Your descendants are going to be born by Sarah. And so you know, the Bible says that Abraham looked at his, his body and he knew that he was beyond the ability to uh, produce a child. And uh, Sarah knew that she wasn't able to conceive for years, and she was already, uh, you know, Abraham was nearing 90, and she was uh, equally old. And so they knew factually that they could not have a child. But God said they were going to have a child. And so his promise to them produced a son, uh, Nine months later. And uh, the promise of God is what produces children for Abraham and ultimately children of God. It's not whether we're born into a Christian family. It's not whether we went to church all our lives. It's whether we believe the promise of God that uh, when he said, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a promise of God spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who believes that, that by putting faith in Jesus as their Savior, God will give them new birth. And he, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about it. He says, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And he said, whatever is born of flesh is flesh. And that's what uh, Ishmael was born according to the normal practices of human procreation. Isaac 
was born because of God's promise and God's supernatural intervention. And frankly, that's the only way people can become children of God, is by supernatural intervention. Anyway, uh, let's continue on in um, Romans 9. Verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And that's what God said to Abraham when he was 90 and when Sarah, and, and, and Sarah laughed and, and, uh, and God said, why did you laugh and so on and so forth. And he said, okay, I'm going to come back to you about this time next year. Okay, so 12 months. And how long does it take for a child to uh, be uh, developed in a, a woman's womb? Nine months. So anyway, God said, by the time I come next year at this time, Sarah's going to have a baby. And she did. And so the promise of God is what produced Isaac. And so God said, your seed are going to be uh, considered those who come through the lineage of Isaac, but it was it was deeper than that. It was not only the physical lineage of Isaac, but it was the spiritual lineage of this miracle son. The spiritual lineage is that the only way Isaac could be produced was by God's promise and supernatural intervention. And that's the only way that people become spiritually Israelites is they believe God, they believe his gospel, they cast themselves upon him for righteousness. They, uh, it doesn't mean they don't live righteously, they do, but it's because they believe in him, not because they're trying to achieve something uh, in his sight. So anyway... Verse 10 says, uh, not only this, the, the story about uh, Abraham and Sarah, not only this, but when Rebekah, who was Isaac's wife, when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children, and the children weren't even born yet. They hadn't done anything, good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand which the Bible says, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, who said to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. And that was not done. In their culture, uh, the firstborn automatically received the, the bigger portion of the inheritance from the father when he passed on. The older son would never serve the younger son. He would always be the one in charge of the estate. But God told Rebekah, the older son, because she had twins, and uh, Esau was born first. So according to their culture, which was legal and uh, established, uh, the older should receive 
the majority of the inheritance, should be lord over the whole estate, and uh, Jacob, who was born secondly, would be subservient to Esau. But God said, the older shall serve the younger. And it's written in the scripture, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And you say, why? Why would God hate Esau? Well, the Bible says that Esau was godless, but God told Rebekah before the boys were even born, neither of them had done anything. God said to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. So God had already made a decision before the boys were born against culture, against typical legal precedent. God said, this is how it's going to be. And, the, and, and he said, hey, I love Jacob, but Esau I hated. This is what God said. And, and someone might say, well, that just doesn't seem right. And so Paul goes on in verse 14 and says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Because that's what someone would say. They would say, the boys hadn't done anything. There's no way to judge them righteous or unrighteous. They hadn't done anything, and yet you told Rebecca before they were born that the older one's going to lose his inheritance and the younger one's going to become the Lord of the estate. That's not done. And so people would say, that's unrighteous. And there are a lot of people today that accuse God of things that they have no understanding about. They have no understanding that God doesn't arbitrarily make decisions. God is perfectly righteous and just, and he will never do anything unjust. It's simply that we don't understand all of the bases of his decisions. Nor should we. We're the creation. We're not the creator. So, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, this is what God said to Moses. He said, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. In other words, I decide who I'm going to have mercy on. And then God also said, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. It's his decision. And Moses wasn't given any more of an answer than that. Paul goes on, verse 16, so then it is not of him who wills. In other words, human will cannot determine God's decisions, nor of him who runs, which basically means of human effort, no matter how hard you work at living right and and being good, God may still decide you're not his child. Because it goes on in verse 16 to say, but of God, it's God's decision. He's the one who decides who to show mercy to. And someone says, that's not fair. And you are wrong. And you may get angry at me. You may say, oh, you're just, you know, you're just a, a rubber stamp. You're just doing what, you know, the Bible says and blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, well, I, I would have to agree with you that I do what the Bible says because I believe it is the inerrant uh, Word of God. And that's what I base my understanding of God on. But as you understand the revelation of Scripture, you find out that God's decisions are based on his foreknowledge. He knows everything in advance. He knows who a person is before he ever makes them. So knowing who we are in advance, there are some that he knows are his because they will come to him in faith. And he knows those who are not his who will not come to him in faith. And, you know, there are all kinds of um, theoretical questions or even rhetorical questions that could be asked. But the bottom line is, we're the creation. We're not the creator. Uh, Paul says in verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, you remember Pharaoh? You remember that Pharaoh was in charge of the Pharaoh that was in charge of Egypt when Israel was enslaved by them. Um, God said, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God intentionally caused this man to come to power in Egypt at that time, knowing how Pharaoh would respond to Moses and Aaron, and knowing how Pharaoh would respond to God's commands through Moses and Aaron, God, knowing that Pharaoh was not his and never would be his, was going to demonstrate himself through Pharaoh and through Egypt at that time, was going to demonstrate who he is. And so God raised this man up and said, I raised you up so that I can demonstrate who I am through you. Therefore, verse 18, God, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And that's what some people wrestle with. Because you go to verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who has resisted his will? In other words, they believe that God forcefully causes people to make the choices they make and, and, and somehow he decides that, that this person will never be his even though they want to be. That's not how the scripture reveals it. Uh, and, and yet here they say, who has resisted his will? And Paul points out the obvious, which is, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it's true. Verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you? to reply against God. Now, we live in a culture right now who blasphemes God. And it breaks my heart. And I personally believe there's nothing that can be done about it because we are headed toward the culmination of God's plan 
where he will defeat the Antichrist, defeat all the rebellious uh, worldly people that fight against him and his people. And uh, it's just God knows this is how it's going to go. And so his his mysterious plan has been in play ever since the garden. Um, who are who are we to, to reply against God? Will the thing formed, and here's how, how Paul explains it, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? And then he begins to explain that we're like the clay that a potter takes and slaps on the wheel and then makes whatever he wants with it. Isn't that the right of the potter? Can you imagine a potter sitting down at the wheel and slapping some clay on there and making a vessel, and then all of a sudden that vessel uh, with eyes and a mouth turns to him and says, why have you made me like this? Why can't I be this? You shouldn't, it's not right, and so on and so forth. That's how absurd it is for humans to look at God and say, why have you made me like this? Because God is the one who decided to make us. He would not have had to make us, but he chose to. And you say, well, it's not right that some shouldn't go to heaven, that some should. Well, it requires you to believe in him. It requires you to accept his truth But the bottom line is God gives all of us the right to choose what we want to do and be in life. He does not demand that we be anything. He allows people to hate him. He allows people to not believe in him. He allows people to speak ill of him if they choose to. Now, He tells them there will be consequences to it, but he gives them the free will to do what they want. So anyway, verse 21, does not the potter have right or have the power over the clay? And we would have to say, yeah, the potter is the one in power. The clay is what he molds. And cannot the potter from the same lump of clay, make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. (coughs) Now, there are some in the Christian church that believe what is meant by this is that God arbitrarily decides, well, this one's going to be a vessel of honor and this one's going to be a vessel of dishonor, and we're going to read in just a few sentences that there are some people who are prepared for destruction, and uh, and someone might say, well, that's just not right. If God arbitrarily chooses, well, this one's going to join me for eternity in heaven, and this one's going to be destroyed forever and, and suffer eternal torment forever, that's not fair. You don't understand God's decision-making. Now, we, there's no way we can understand every nuance of how God makes decisions, but in his mercy, I believe he's given us insight that, can, that frankly, is righteous and just. Um, 
Let, I have to continue on before I can explain that. Let's, let's look at verse 22, because Paul is talking about, he's talking about God's right to be sovereign and Lord over all creation, because he's the one who made it. And once again, we deal with a culture that has decided they don't believe that God made everything that can be seen. They believe that it just happened. And, uh, and they have their theories as to why and how it just happened. And they're still trying to discover how all of this happened. And they refuse to accept, you know, we Christians call it intelligent design is what we call it. But what we're mainly saying is that God, in his wisdom and intelligence and his power, made everything that we see. He made it all, even including us. And therefore, since he made it all, then he has power over it all, and he can do with his creation whatever he wants. So Paul says in verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath... And to make his power known. Okay, so let's say that God wanted to show his creation his wrath. And you might say, why would he do that? Uh, Once again, can the pot say to the one who formed it, to the potter, why are you doing this? No. What if God wants to display his wrath? And what if he wants to make his power known? Well, none of us, first of all, none of us can stop it because God is all-powerful. Frankly, if God had not shown the compassion and mercy that he has shown over the thousands of years that man has existed, if God had not shown the mercy and patience that he has, we would all be gone. And by the way, science is discovering more and more proof of a worldwide deluge or a worldwide flood, which proves what the scripture says, that at one point God saw that man was so wicked that he uh, wanted to start over. And so he sent a worldwide flood, but he saved eight people. And you say, well, that's just not fair. Once again, you go ahead and try and and speak to the one who made you. You have no rights. You have no power. We need to be thankful that God is merciful and loves us and is willing to put up with our shenanigans and is willing to forgive us again and again and again and has provided salvation for us in Christ. And by the way, as you begin to understand the justification that we are given through faith in Christ, we are at peace with God, and we are on our way to heaven, and it is certain it is not uh, something we have to be afraid of. We're we're safe, we're saved, we're in God's hands, we're in Christ's hands, and we're going to uh, live with him for eternity, and we're going to miss all the, the mess that comes upon this world 
who frankly is defying God and deserves to be judged. So, would you not humble yourself before God and admit that you don't understand everything and try and trust him through whatever you're going through? Because, once again, verse 22, what if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, we're going to see. In fact, you know what? It's not that we're going to see it. It's actually at the end of chapter 8. You find that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those that he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified, declared innocent. And those he justified, he also glorified. So when the scripture says that there are people that are destined or prepared for destruction... It's not an arbitrary decision on behalf of God. It is the decision based on his knowledge that they will reject him and they will never come to him. Now, he, he offers salvation to everyone, but he knows who will respond to him and who won't. And you say, well, why can't he just, you know, find a way to save everybody? Because that would be taking away their free will. God, frankly, has honored the human race by making them in his image. And he gave us re the ability to reason. He gave us the ability to create, not only procreation, but also be creative and and engineer and design wonderful things. He's given us the ability to reason. He's given us the ability to develop. I mean, just look at the technology that's been developed by mankind. He's given us that freedom, and along with that, he gave us a, an absolutely free will. He does not control any of our choices. If we want his his guidance, absolutely. If we are his, absolutely the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. But that's because we want it. But anyone who does not want it, he will not force it. So, let's go back to verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which we are, those that he knows are his, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So the Lord has children in the nation of Israel, but also in all the nations of the world. As 
the Lord, the Holy Spirit, also said in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people. See, he's trying to, trying to get this idea out there that there are people that originally were not called his people. They weren't Jews. But because of Christ being the Savior not only of the Jews but of the Gentiles, now God could, could predict that there were going to be people that are going to be uh, part of a group that were not called his people, but he knows they're his. And so they're my people. And then there are some who are called not beloved of God, but he knows that there are some in that group who are beloved of him because they're his. Verse 26, And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You're not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. He knows that his people are in the midst of every a people group on earth. He's got children in every people group on earth earth. Doesn't matter what their upbringing is. Doesn't matter what their genetics are. He knows they are his. And Isaiah pointed out uh, something that I was trying to get across to you here in verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. And frankly, Israel was a, a, a nation of millions. Isaiah says, only the remnant's going to be saved. That's another hard truth. But you see that, you see that in the Lord's teaching in the New Testament. He talks about the two paths. There's one path that is straight and narrow. And that's the path that leads to life. And Jesus said, only a few find it. But he said there's another path. It's broad, winding, easy. A lot of people are on that path. He said, but that's the path that leads to death. Everybody's on that path. You see, the sad thing is, even though God created us all, the vast majority of us are going to reject him, not believe him, not receive his salvation? The Bible says that we, that we don't receive the love of the truth so we can be saved. Have you ever had a family member that seemed to live a self-destructive life? And you, you bent over backwards. You may have even expended thousands of dollars trying to help this loved one. You did everything you could and that person still made harmful choices and they ultimately died because of it. And you wept and you wept and you wept and you wept because you did everything you could. But that person would not be saved. What more could God do than send his only son? You say, well, I thought, God had all kinds of sons. There's only one man that was begotten of God, and that's the man Christ Jesus. Because you see the miracle in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary 
She had never known a man. She was a virgin. And so God deposited his genetics somehow in a miracle. He deposited his, gen his genetics in Mary's womb and the 23 chromosomes of God and the 23 chromosomes of Mary joined together and created a body for the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The rest of us are adopted. And so, what else could he have done than sent his only begotten Son on our behalf because of our sin, the whole race, and condemned our sin in Jesus' body on that cross, and Jesus died and went to hell in payment for our sin. The Bible says that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What else can God do to save us? You see, and now because Jesus had not sinned himself, death and Satan had no legal hold on him, and so he was able to take the authority of death, hell, and the grave, which Satan held, but Jesus purchased it with his own blood. He took those keys and authority of death, hell, and the grave, and he rose from the dead by the power of God, and now he is seated at the right hand of God, and he's making intercession for us in a high priestly role. And everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and by the way, Jesus said, those who have my commands and keep them, they're the ones who love me. So just confessing Jesus as Lord is not really the proof of the pudding. The proof, of the proof in the pudding is whether we know the Word of God, have Christ's commands in our heart, and we do our best to keep them. That is what proves our love for Him. And that's the faith that saves us. And people, they just keep wanting to blame God because they want to be able to live the way they want without any accountability. They want to, be, they want to live the way they want and then say to God, okay, let me into eternal bliss. That's not God's way. God has provided salvation. But then we relinquish ourselves to him willingly and we we enjoy a blessed communion with him and we have the promise of eternal life but isaiah said in verse 29 he said unless the lord of sabaoth had left us a seed unless the lord god of heaven had left israel you know some people alive from all the times they were uh, judged for their sinfulness. Isaiah said, we would have become like Sodom and would have been like Gomorrah, who were absolutely destroyed. Every man, woman, child, animal 
was destroyed because of their wickedness. But God had a remnant of Jews that he considered faithful. And so God never wiped out the nation of Israel because of his promise to Abraham. So, Paul goes on to say in verse 30, what shall we say then? You know, considering God's sovereignty, lordship, absolute power, righteous condition of being free to do what he wants with his people or with his creation. Verse 30, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. And frankly, that's what's happened, folks. We Gentiles, we non-Jews who are part of the church, we have attained righteousness before God. Not because of our efforts, not because of our church going, but because we put faith in Jesus Christ when we heard the gospel that he died for us. And that, uh, and that God offers us eternal life. Well, we believe in, in Jesus. We believe in God, and we believe that he's going to keep that promise. And so that faith is credited to us by God as righteousness, just like Abraham's faith was credited, credited to him. So the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained it. And the reason they did not attain righteousness is because they were trying to achieve righteousness through their efforts. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Jesus. Jesus came in to Jerusalem I'm the Messiah. Rather than putting faith in him, they hated him, and they killed him. God said, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and rock of offense. They took offense at the Lord Jesus. In a way, they were saying, How dare you come in here and tell us that you are our Messiah? Well, he had proven through his ministry and the miracles he had proven again and again and again that he was their Messiah. But they refused to accept him. And yet, it's written, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There were some who humbled themselves and put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll never be put to shame. They'll never be ashamed of their choice to believe. And they will live with God forever because they believe. I pray, my friend, that you will believe as well. God bless you. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind Cause I know there is peace within His presence I speak Jesus